Okay. Question for the day. What <laughs> book did you read this past year that you just could not wait to share with a friend? Oh my gosh. So many. I know Adamika is going to need a minute to think because she's a cray cray yeah. reader. I'm going <laughs> to go with Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. For all, all of right. you who ever wanted to be a fly on the wall in like therapist's office, this is Not your book. Me. Yes. It is so good. And you get to just like, I loved it. Dive into that whole like, you never know what someone is going through. Well, you learn so much from that, I think. And I love it. It's such a heart buster. I love it. I love it. I love it. Highly recommend. <laughs> why I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> All right. Uh, I would say Thick by Tressie McMillan Cottom. Ooh. First of all, the author is a guru. She is major thinker. And she's like, you know, uber smart, but also super realistic, like sociologist professor, but also like badass on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and her range as a writer is prolific. These essays are like deep and gorgeous and exciting. It's like black womanhood, body image, capitalism, all the things. Uh. Okay, adding it to the list, adding it to my list. I'm writing this down right now. Um, I would say I loved Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller. It just brought together so many things that I'm interested in. It's historical fiction, um, but it's intrigue. It's social justice. It's dirty politics. There's love. There's falling out of love. There are children. There how do you be a parent to children? Oh, my God. Dang. Love this book. I know, right? There are so many amazing writers and amazing stories out there. Like, whenever I'm searching for my next read, I am always blown away by how many options there are. And, like, how are we ever going to read all the great books? <laughs> Two. I don't know. I read a lot of them. But it's all about the variety for me. I'm currently doing a deep dive right now into the 10-year edition of Brene Brown's book. Um, love and Brene. I know, I know. But I also <laughs> really love getting together and chatting about books with people. So I have an ab- unapologetically non-binary queer anyone is welcome book club. Um, yes. And they always bring like Great. the g- best book choices and topics that really hit home, both fiction and nonfiction and things I would never have exposure to. So books bring so many ways for us to bond together. Oh, yes, they do. And y'all know we are all about the bonding. Yes, yeah. we are. <laughs> this is Bring a Friend, a podcast where real people shine and where people who shine get real. These are conversations we usually have with our best friends, and now we're living them out loud with you. I'm Arielle Fuller. I'm Adamika Arthur. And I'm Ann Devereaux Mills. Our guests today are two friends of mine who not only bond over books, but they've made a career out of their joint love for a story well told. I'm not sure how many friendships of mine would survive a business relationship in the mix. It's going pretty well for these two. Let's hear how they make it work. We're gonna live this one out loud. I'm Julie Grau, and with Cindy Spiegel, we have recently relaunched our publishing company as an independent multi-platform publisher called Spiegel and Grau. And I'm Cindy Spiegel, and I'm Julie's longtime business partner. I love the fact that you just said, we just launched a publish an independent publishing label. I don't know any other women who have done that. Are you both the first? I think that we're the first people to name women, maybe to name a publishing company after ourselves. We, when we Ooh. started Spiegel and Grau, we, we were at Random House and um, we were trying to figure out what our name would be. And Julie said to me, why don't you ask Harold Bloom, the famous literary critic, what a great name for our company will be. And I, I had worked with Harold for years. And so I called him, Exper- you know, we were both expecting some great Shakespearean name. And he said, it's time for you to 
claim this thing as your own. You have to name it, mm. he said, Grauenspiegel, because, um, because it's, it's time. But what we realized at the time was that all of those big publishing houses, all the corporate houses, are named after men. So they're all people's names, Houghton Mifflin, Simon & Schuster, Alfred Schuster, A. Knopf, <laughs> Knopf HarperCollins, Farrar, um, Strauss, and Giroux, <laughs> Putnam, Doubleday, Scribner, those are all men's names. And we suddenly thought, you know what, we can become a company with two women's names. And we thought that was really cool. We thought it was both backward looking to a tradition of publishing and also forward looking. I love that backward and forward. Um... Because I often think about, like, my ancestors behind me and my future in front of me. Grau is my father's name, and Spiegel is Cindy's father's name. And mm. um, when we started Spiegel and Grau, it was a few years after my father had passed, and it was it felt like a legacy project for me, too. I liked that. His, and then Cindy's father passed a few years after we began. I actually, I mean, as someone who's lost um, my father, who's a huge figure in my own life, there's not only a sense of permanence I can imagine, but also a sense of legacy and reverence. Um, what what qualities of your dad's um, do you bring to your work every day? My dad was very hardworking. He didn't go to college. He had a tough childhood. He ran away when he was 16 to join the Merchant Marines because he wanted to get out of his house. And... He, he was a type A personality who worked really hard. I like to think I have a similar capacity for work. And, and everything <laughs> he did, a. he worked for his, for his family. He worked to make it a better life for his family. Um, so that's, that's what I think of too. And I also think that it's, you know, he gave us an education and, mm -hmm. and this is the fruit of, of my having an education. Yeah, pathway and a passport. Cindy, forward. what's your dad? What's your dad's yeah, legacy? Yeah, my, my dad was also a depression era child. You know, his first language was Yiddish. He you know, he graduated first in his high school class, which was a technical college to become a printer. He he actually was a big guy. He played on the during the war, he was on the bench with the Philadelphia Eagles. Um and he didn't take, oh. he, he won a full scholarship to Carnegie Mellon, but he, instead of taking it, he enlisted in the army, in the U.S. Army, and was stationed in Japan during the occupation. And my father was also a character, you know, he was a really funny guy. You know, I was always a little <laughs> embarrassed by him because he was very rough around the edges. But everybody else loved him, and he was unbelievably generous, and he really acted on what he believed in. And, um, you know, I think that's also what Julie and I are, have been trying to do, are publish books that we believe in. And, you know, I think that that's one thing that Julie and I found together, you know, that, that brought us together was that sense that of purpose, of hard work, of real dedication to, to things that we believe in. And we see our publishing as a kind of form of activism. Yeah, you've ta you talk about the, the authenticity of your fathers, whether they were rough around the edges, hardworking, trying to get educated while supporting families. I think some of the books in your history probably pick up on similar authentic vulnerable stories. Can you talk a little bit about the books that you two have helped bring into this world that you're sort of most proud of and the type of genre you're looking at moving forward? Sure. Um, you know, I think that when we started at Riverhead, we, we 
Um, and I, I don't know that we did this, you know, intentionally, but what, what Riverhead became known for was a place of, uh, at the time it was called Multicultural Voices. And um, I think we, we have gone on to, you know, try to keep our ear to, attuned to the times and, and find the books that speak to the moment. I would add on what Cindy said, really what we did in the 90s and early 2000s when we were at Riverhead, and I guess we should just back up and say Cindy and I were two of the four editors who started Riverhead Books, and then Cindy and I went on to become the co-publishers of Riverhead. We expanded the definition of American literature, right? The, these mm-hmm. multicultural voices, diverse voices now are, are American voices. And, and I think that was very important and surprisingly groundbreaking work um, to, at that time. In 2006, we, we left Riverhead and came to Random House and started Spiegel and Growl. And it was an opportunity to kind of take stock and say, what, what's new now? What do we want to do? Who do we want to be? And a lot of this is just kind of um, instinctive and the product of responding to your own, being a, a alert to your own interests and curiosity and where your curiosity is pulled. And as it happened, we we were very curious and and found the right books that spoke to criminal justice reform, social mm-hmm. justice. Um, Orange is the New Black was one of the first proposals that I'd acquired when we started uh, Spiegel and Grau at Random House. Um, we had published Ta-Nehisi Coates' first book, which was a family memoir, um, and put put uh, the book that would become Between the World and Me under contract, and it was a different book, and we were mm-hmm. alert and nimble and and open to him discovering what he wanted to write about and recognizing the importance of Between the World and Me. Um, Cindy had the proposal for Just Mercy, and we saw what a monumental mm. story that that could be. Uh, and one, one of the things that I love about our jobs that, that is really it puts us in such a privileged position is that we are in this seat where we see the culture as it passes by our desk, right? We, mm-hmm. every, every agent is sending us proposals from all the writers that they think are the best writers that they can get their hands on. And one of the things we noticed, and, and it's a great, amazing way to track the culture, right? And that's what we try to do as editors is to be on the forefront of, of the cultural conversation. And one of the things that we noticed when, when we were at Riverhead, it was really all about the eye. You know, everything was about identity and individual mm-hmm. stories. And then suddenly when we, I got the proposal for The Kite Runner, I realized that it was mm-hmm. an epic story of a country. And suddenly it felt like it was a bigger story. It wasn't, it, it was a shift for me. You know, it felt like something was changing and we were talking about a larger landscape. And when we moved to Random House, the economy had just fallen out and mm-hmm. 9-11 came after and, and the world was changing. And suddenly those stories about criminal justice, about us as a society, were seeming to feel really, really urgent and more important. And so it's interesting just to sit in our seats and be able to see those stories and try to identify them and, and be a little bit ahead of the curve, but not too much because then the books won't sell. <laughs> so that's the challenge. So 
Anne and I both read a ton of books and we both share lots of books. Um, so as a reader, like my first, I think, experience with publishing is really through like Toni Morrison's lens, right, of her. But like now with this nationwide protests against police brutality and racial injustice, like many lay people don't understand what publishing is as an industry like um like you know there's literary agents and authors and marketers and publicists and editors and booksellers but like what what do publishers do i think we're curators right julie like we're we both Mm -hmm. curate and we also shape the stories we help writers shape their stories because people have amazing stories some can just tell them very few with no help at all and some people need help in telling their stories and we help them not only tell the stories, not only make the words better, you know, not only edit it word by word, but we help them clarify their message. And so we, we both identify the messages and clarify them. And, and we decide also as publishers what our vision, who is the reader for that story and how mm-hmm. to get their story to the reader. And do you each separately pick authors? You agree as, you, you agree as a team yes, this book makes sense. And then do you each sort of get assigned to work with the authors or do you do everything collaboratively? You, you know, most of the books that we acquire come from literary agents and they are usually sent specifically to an editor. And sometimes we will assign the book to another editor. Um, We both usually read before we acquire (laughs) so that we make sure we're in agreement um although there's also a good amount of trust between us if if cindy feels strongly and sees it then that's fine for me that's one of the benefits of a long-time partnership um and uh we're we're fairly intimately involved in the publication of each book no matter who the editor is um, you know the the that primary relationship between the editor and the writer is is you know the the nucleus of the mm. project, <laughs> and I would say, Anamika, that the um, when you ask what an editor does, particularly in the acquisition stage, you know you will have a meeting with the writer to make sure that your visions align. And and often an editor will have a particular take on a project that other editors don't have. And, um, and so Cindy and I and our editors are very hands-on in that way. We, we are not shy about talking about what's there on the page and what could be there <laughs> and how we see it. And, um, and, and, if a writer agrees with that vision, then in a way it's it's a very it's a competitive advantage, right? If you if you see some a way a place to take their work to, to elevate it to to shape it in a way that seems to have, uh, could have a greater impact, then that's that's really persuasive, especially if you're aligned with their with their vision of it too. So, I can imagine for an author whether it's um, sort of fiction or the evolution of you know a, a personal story that it's really hard 
to have your work altered by someone else. Mm. I mean, you guys must be very skilled at not taking away the heart of people who are bringing you their stories by working on ways to make it better. That sounds like quite a talent. I think sometimes we feel like therapists, you know. Um, (laughs) It requires trust. (laughs) Right, right. The key is to make the writer feel understood, right? And if they feel that we understand where they're going and we can help them get there, then you're on a good path. And and that's why it's really helpful to have those early conversations that Julie was talking about, because if you're not on the same path, you'll just struggle and you'll never get there. Even as talented as the writer might be or as talented as you might be as an editor, you're never going to get the book both of you are happy with. So, Do yeah. most writers who are super excited and their agents present books to you and they feel like this is the thing, and then you sort of say... 70% of the thing, but I think we need, you know, a 30% alteration. Is that, you know, I've run creative organizations before, so I'm sort of empathizing. And as a writer, I'm empathizing that someone would say, eh, you've spent all this time, we've, I've given you a manuscript, and now you're telling me that I need to essentially do it over. We, we do do that. And, and The Kite Runner <laughs> is a great example, right? Because that book came in and his the the protagonist's wife was American in the novel, and that really wasn't working for me. And later, it turned out that Khaled knew very few American women. You know, he just didn't. He was mm. he wasn't writing from experience. And when he changed the you know the the wife to being an Afghan character, the whole second half of the novel changed. But we just decided that he would do that on on the call. I said, "Are you willing to th- rethink this?" And he said, "Yes." And it, I, I thought he was such a good writer and I believed in his vision and I liked him so much on the call. I just felt that we could do this together. And so we just took a leap of faith. So when you like someone and trust them and you see that talent, you know, I think we're experienced enough to feel that to trust our own instinct about that. So, But that requires developing a relationship, right? Because if you're talking about and, you know, you gave Tanasi Coates as a great example, like you know, as an African-American female, I think it would be a little hard for someone to tell me my experience of being, you know, an African-American woman. right? <laughs> and so um, like it's, it's, it, you know, how is it that you develop those relationships so that the hope for what the writer has ends up being your shared hope for what the book will bring? Well, as Cindy said, a lot of it begins with just showing that you have an understanding of what they're trying to achieve. Got it. And, and you know, the greatest success as an editor is being able to make sure that what's on the page matches what that vision in the writer's head. Um, I think that, that uh, in some instances you can say, you are going for X. And I understand that you are going for X, but I'm saying that my experience as a reader is that it it didn't it didn't land with me. So let's figure mm-hmm. out how we can communi- how we can get that point across in a better way. I I, you know, in all of my years of working with writers, I really have a hard time thinking. Maybe I can think of one or two who were really resistant um, to mm-hmm. editing. I can think of two. Who were who were resistant? <laughs> They're probably very memorable. <laughs> but huh? that's a very small percentage. That's no a names. Very small percentage. <laughs> and they were men. <laughs> Shocker. So I was thinking that, but you said it. <laughs>
So I want to ask a little bit about, like, when I think of publishing, I guess I think of New York suits, men, gray suits, right? Like, I don't know why that's the vision that comes in my brain. Um, How did you even know that you wanted this to be a career you wanted to pursue? How did you guys get here? Um, I think that, uh, well, mine, mine was sort of accidental. After college, I went to journalism school. I kind of cycled through the radio concentration because I had done radio in college and thought that was that was where I'd go and then learned there were no jobs in radio. This was in the 1980s and um, lasted about a week in the TV concentration and then um, actually found my footing and found that I had an affinity for uh, writing and for magazine writing. When I graduated, I called one of my professors to ask his advice about a couple of magazines where I was interviewing, and he persuaded me to come to Random House, where he had just begun work as an editor. He had been a consulting editor, and uh, persuaded me that it would be like an apprenticeship. I, had, I was young. I had a, at least a year to burn. I'd work for him and this other editor who was who, as it turned out, was a a legendary Random House editor. And that's the kind of person that you get the image you have of the gray suits and the unfiltered (laughs) camel cigarette going in the ashtray. This was the 80s, so smoking in the office was allowed there was Pocket so square. much smoking in the office and they paid you and they paid you nothing oh. right it's my recollection because I moved to New York in the 80s and I had friends in publishing and while I made nothing they made even less than I nothing. made I'm not ashamed to tell you what I made I made $15,500 a year I got the extra $500 because I had a master's degree <laughs> wow. And that was what year? Uh, 1986. So in 1984, I made $18,000 a year. You were flush. in Sort of in the same way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was flush. I could buy a, one newspaper a week. My, um, my dearest friend from that era who was working, who had started a year or two ahead of me, uh, she's now a writer, Laura Zygman, um, and she was working in publicity and she used to walk she lived on the upper east side and she used to walk to and from work you know every day to save the bus fare subway fare <laughs> yeah so. yeah me too it's why my feet are broken from 4 inch heels Oof. walking down madison avenue <laughs> <laughs> anyway i took the job and i loved it and i i had said to myself when i get bored i'll go and i an opportunity came to me I was it was really was an apprenticeship and I and I had two very different views because the editor that I worked for had hustle and the other guy had this legendary list of writers Cindy what was your experience uh, mine mine was um, a literary path you know I grew up I grew up in New York um, so that actually factors into it I, I I knew that I wanted to I wanted to write actually and I loved reading and it was and I was kind of a little bit um, spacey. Like, I didn't know if I could really function in the real world. I just knew that I could really read and, and write. And so um, after college, I got my first job in the, in the college division at Random House. I was making $12,000 a year, <laughs> just Ooh. for your information. <laughs> and, um, and I worked there for four years. It was, it was a, a great, you know, Random House was really at its, 
in its heyday, it was Robert Bernstein was the chairman. It was, I felt very proud to be there. They had a very, um, a real training program to be an editor. So I learned how to copy edit and proofread, but I really didn't want to work on college textbooks. And I was also getting really sick of being in New York. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go because where do you go from New York? And I, and I wanted to read. And one day I found myself, I'd also studied Russian throughout my life. My mother was from Poland, but her first language was Russian. And I, I realized that I wanted, my, and I was losing my Russian. And one day I realized that I, I started reading um, War and Peace, uh, which I had never read before. And I couldn't stop reading it. And I was reading it under my desk at work. <laughs> and I realized that I needed to read more and I hadn't had the time I needed. And so I applied to graduate school and I ended up in Berkeley, um, California and spent four years there doing a PhD in comparative literature. And it was, it was I, I couldn't read Russian really, it was pathetic, but I loved being there. And I, I had never wanted to be a professor. You know, I never wanted to be an academic. It had just been somewhere to get out of the situation I was in. And then I was suddenly turning 30 and I was in a panic and I did miss New York. And I came back and looked for jobs in publishing. I was apparently too old. Um, and I finally found a job at a little imprint called Tickner and Fields, which was part of Houghton Mifflin at the time. Um, I was actually, I was there for three or four years. And when I left, I, I was actually pregnant. I, I, I gave birth. Um, I, I had a baby. I, I ended up marrying my boyfriend from Berkeley who came to New York. And the week I came back from maternity leave, they closed down Tickner and Fields <laughs> and, I, so you had a baby and lost your job. I had a baby, lost my job. And amazingly, Susan Peterson was starting Riverhead Books, and she found me and Julie and two other women, and that started the amazing... The love you know, affair. Part of, uh, totally. <laughs> and, 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 and not only that, but Susan, I was very, very shy. You know, I didn't know if I knew commercial books. I'd really only read classics. I'd hardly read any books from the 20th century even, you know. And Susan gave me incredible faith in myself. Um, and strangely enough, the books that we published were all, you know, many of them, so many of them were bestsellers. So that really started a whole new way of thinking about books and, and also about, you know, it, was le it became less over time about the writing than it did about the story and what, what, what that work could actually do in the world. And so it's been a really interesting evolution. I want to talk about your love affair. I mean, that's what Adamika just <laughs> called it. And, you know, you obviously have partners and children and all sorts of other things. But there your work is wife, a work connection. Work wife. That's maybe a better one. Yeah, there's, yeah. I think more than that, there's a connection between the two of you that extends from friendship to work where you balance each other out in unique ways. Can you tell me what's, what's the most special thing about each other? What are you glad that the other one has that, that makes you a better whole? It's always a hard question for me to answer because in certain ways, Julie and I are so similar in the way, well, uh, let me start by saying that when we first met, Julie and I weren't really friends. We were so different and we were in very different parts of our lives. I was married, I had a child and I was living on the Upper West Side. Julie was single, leading a very glamorous <laughs> life in New York, hanging out with Freddie Stanellis and Jay McInerney. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she lived downtown <laughs> um and so you know we were perfectly good colleagues but I I thought of her as as different you know I, I mean she was in publishing longer than I was I admired her um and slowly we but we had some basic very basic values that were similar mm -hmm. and we were 
we became co-editorial directors first and then co-publishers, really because there was no one else to do the job. And it, it suddenly, it was very easy for us to work together. We really fell into that, I think, perfectly easily. And then at some point, Julie married a guy on the Upper West Side who had a son, and suddenly we were the same. Um, it was kind of funny. It's like, you she, know, um, when Elaine says, oh my God, I'm becoming George Costanza. <laughs> was like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Julie. <laughs> but I, you know, I do think that we share values. We, share, we By now, we're kind of a brain meld. And that's what's so cool about it. You know, I can't imagine working by myself because I get this extra part that, you know, some days I'm off and Julie's on and some days it's the opposite and some days sure. we're both off, but some yeah. days we're both on. <laughs> and it's like a net that we have, you know, but, but like one that kind of both catches you, but also oh, there's a way that we, we're bigger than each of ourselves when we're together. And that's what's so exciting. And when we left Random House, we knew that we were so much bigger together than we were by, you know, on our own. And I think that's what we share that's so powerful. Can you describe the moment that you both decided to launch your own publishing house was there were there many cocktails was there late night what 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 happened how did this how did this all happen um so we our imprint at random house we had for 13 years we had just come off of our th a very successful year at the end of 2018 very successful um there had been a reorganization internally in random house but we felt we were fine because we were so profitable and and so we were very surprised <laughs> by the news that the imprint was being closed down um the the announcement went out to the world about our imprint closing on a friday morning and um i very soon after even before the public knew cindy and i knew that we wanted to keep working together it wasn't even a discussion really we we <laughs> had meetings with other publishers together separately but we knew very quickly that there was an opportunity being presented to us and again it was funny because when we left Riverhead it was approximately a decade and 13 years after Random House but we knew that it was an opportunity for if not a reinvention a redefinition and that we could um what we wanted to do was something that we hadn't done before, that we had done but hadn't done. And uh, and what was immediately appealing to us, although we weren't sure how to get there, was to do it on our own terms and to, and to kind of build it from the ground up. And so doing something brand new, a startup for ourselves, was incredibly appealing. We started by writing a document and we would pass it back and forth and refine the idea. We thought we were writing a business plan. It was kind of like a long memo. <laughs> we learned what a business plan actually has to look like. Um, but it was really formative and important, I think, to us uh, in articulating the idea and thinking things through. And the world was a different world in 2019 than it was in 2005 2006 when we started Spiegel and Grau so that's that's where we saw opportunity too I was going to answer the question that you asked earlier Adamika about 
when we realized that we, the two of us could leave together, could leave Riverhead together and start Spiegel and Grau. Mm -hmm. And that happened because um, Julie was considering taking a big job somewhere else. She was being offered a job for much more money. And she was think I knew that she was thinking of leaving Riverhead. I told you. And I said, yes, I know. I said, I <laughs> literally I can't afford not to consider this. Right. It was like, it blew my yeah. mind. It was and double. This, this was your sex in the city phase, right? So you had to get like. No, I was already married at that point. And okay, I had so this is post, a. Post sex in the city yes, phase. Yes, yes. I got married in 2002. This is no time for sex in the city. <laughs> <laughs> I got married exactly. in 2002. Um, this was in 2005. I, so I had been married for a few years. And as Cindy said, my husband, I had a, I had a, I was an instant mother. I had a six year old child when we got married from my, my husband's previous marriage. And at the same time, Julie was considering this other job. I was being courted by a great publisher and CEO who was offering me my own imprint at another house. And he had been sort of chasing me around. I didn't realize, I didn't understand why he kept wanting to have dinner with me. <laughs> Finally, he cornered me in a, in, at a party and said, look, this is what I want to tell you. I just wanted to know if you'd be interested in starting your own imprint at this other house. And I said, you know, I really don't want to leave Riverhead. I, I run a house already, you know, but there's something happening. And I just blurted out, you know, I said, if something's happening and maybe I will want to leave. I said, I just don't want to leave Julie. I just blurted <laughs> that out. Oh. And he said to me, you could both come. That would be an amazing thing. And a light bulb went off. We didn't end up going to that house. It was a house we were actually competitive with. So it didn't really make sense to all be vying for the same books. But suddenly we knew that we could go leave together. And that had never registered before and that was what set off the light bulb so again it was hard to imagine not working together and I think it was that moment when we were fired you know we were sitting in our boss's office and and to our great surprise she said you will no longer Spiegel and Grau will no longer be part of the Random House crown group the new group going forward we just looked at each other and I think we both knew that First of all, we felt a little liberated, I have to say, because it was so hard there. And I think we even, you know, I don't know what was going on in Julie's head at the moment, but I just felt that there were possibilities for us moving forward and it would involve us both together. I said to, you you know what was going on in my head. It may not have been in that moment because I think in that moment I was in shock. <laughs> but about 24 hours later, maybe more, uh, Cindy and I, I have a very vivid memory. It was probably close to midnight and we were on the phone because I remember kind of whispering because other people in the house were asleep. And I said to Cindy, I feel like I'm seeing the edge of the negativity cloud and I'm coming out from under it. <laughs> and yes. Cindy said, me too. And we said, I feel fine. And you said, me too. We feel fine. <laughs> we knew we were fine. <laughs> It's amazing how you can get so comfortable in a, in a sort of oppressive space and not realize you're nearly boiling to death until something forces you out. And obviously it forced you into an amazing new chapter that we can't yes. uh, wait to follow, follow well, I along would, on so I would add levels. one other thing about when you said about what we admire about each other. Cindy and I care. <laughs> we care oh. about everything. 
to an insane degree. <laughs> and I think that that if if we weren't um, in league on that, I think we would continually uh, there'd be a lot of friction. But I think that we sounds like you're in love like that. That's great. <laughs> beautiful. Like caring is such a it's a it's a wonderful guiding principle. And what an, an incredible pillar or tenant to work together. It's beautiful. to tap into people's souls and you and I share so many book choices together I feel like we got a little mini version of like work friend combo going on with this podcast totally we might need a new podcast our favorite book (laughs) podcast (laughs) the Libro ladies right (laughs) consider me subscribed and also one of my favorite parts of finishing a great book is talking about it with a friend who read the same thing because it's so much better to deep dive together Speaking of which, let's dive deeper with our own community. Hi, this is Chelsea from Connecticut. Can you please share some do's and don'ts for best friends interested in starting a business together? Thank you. There's only a few, right? (laughs) (laughs) This process was really organic. And the the Mm -hmm. difference is that Julie and I have actually been in business together for many years. So it didn't feel the same as starting a new business. It felt that we were continuing what we had done and we were building on our experience. Mm -hmm. So we had to learn a lot. We had to learn about investors. We had to learn about how to build a business plan. We had to learn nitty gritty stuff about books publishing that we just didn't know that we hadn't we thought we knew some of but we just never paid that in-depth experience you know um attention to so but the actual business part was just felt like a continuation of our collaboration so fair any any overarching advice of like if you're thinking of going into business with your best friend dot 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 I I I mean I think that what Cindy said is is right on and I would extrapolate that to say it helps if you both have similar experience or at least clear mm-hmm. experience that's complementary and you've done it before um I think okay. that it's I think that it it seems to me like it's putting a lot of pressure on a friendship to to expect it to transmute into a business partnership in a funny right. way, I think Cindy and I were very compatible colleagues who grew into a friendship. And that's one thing that I would say, I think that it addresses an earlier question too, is that, you know, the the benefit of having known each other so long and worked side by side for so long mm-hmm. also is that you, we've lived through through major life events with each other. We we know how we each work. We're able to kind of, we know the choreography. We can, we know how to cover for each other. And I, I can't yes. imagine starting without knowing those dance steps, you know, and knowing, and knowing intimately how that. we each work and how our minds work in business, because I think it's quite different to just be a friend yeah, you, you don't really know how someone works in any given yeah. stressful business situation. So I would, I guess my, my advice would be like, make sure you are compatible in a business context, because that's kind yes. of more important even than the, the friendship. Trust is important too, of course. Hey there, I'm Julian from Manila. And I was wondering what you all look for when you're considering a new author. 
and what advice would you give to any writers hoping to become published authors? Thanks so much. Um, voice matters. Voice matters. Okay, break that down. I think you can spite a re- spot a real writer um, in the in the opening pages of a book if they have a, mm. an authentic voice and an authentic way of telling their story or telling a story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Yeah, no, I think it's a mixture of voice and message, right? So, you know, someone has to know how to craft a message because otherwise no one will read it. But they also have to have the right message that is of the time and is of interest to people. Mm-hmm. So what you, what's different about the publishing that Julie and I do, and I think this is really important, is that we're not interested in stories that have already been told because they've already been told and you could go read that book. There are a lot yeah. of publishers who publish, you know, they publish genre publishing they publish category publishing they tell the same story over and over because they figure it worked once let's do it again there's an audience right. for it it's right a formula exactly <laughs> and we know how to publish that book but i would just get really bored if if i had to do that if i had to work totally. on the same story over and over again you know what would that would just not be an interesting job for me so julie and i are always looking for <laughs> new voices and new messages and the way those two things come together beautiful that I, I'm happy to hear it because that's what we want to read. You're so right. If all of the books were the same structure, formula, la, 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 that would not be great. Um, beautiful. Okay, next up we have, and this is our last community question, we have Anne from Corpus Christi um, asking, what do you think it will take for male-dominated industries to value women's perspectives and recognize our talents? Whew. That was a giant question. <laughs> that was yeah, not a Anne. small that was and a softball. I think the moment they notice that women's run companies make money, they will start valuing them. Oh, whoop, there it is. True. True, true, true. <laughs> Julie, what do you think? <laughs> um, I, I agree with that. I, don't, I think that change is happening. I think it's afoot. Um, I, I have never, you know, we, we duck our heads down and we work really hard to make whatever we're involved in successful and mm-hmm. hope that it has a cumulative effect <laughs> outwardly. Totally. I think it's very hard to um, aspire to global change in the day-to-day. I think it's about the day to, what, what you do and, and what you ask for and the quality of your work and your output in the day-to-day. That's, I don't know if I Absolutely. answered that question. And we care. <laughs> We care, which I think is huge. And you already, you highlighted that. So that's super important. I would love to know for you two as individuals, what is the most important book in your life so far? It's hard to answer that question because Ever? there's so, so many. Ever. <laughs> you mean you as a reader? today? Yeah, I mean, just for you as not necessarily tied to your job, just like the book that has had the most... Um, profound impact on your life so far. I'm going to say a book called The Man Who Planted Trees by Jim Robbins, which is a book that I edited. And it tells the story of a visionary named David Millark, who who was an alcoholic, like a hard living, hard scrabble, bare knuckle wrestler who lived in Michigan, third generation nurseryman who 
had a near-death experience when after he gave up alcohol, he had kidney and liver failure. And he was shown a vision of a world without trees, and he was told it wasn't his time, and he had a job to do. And he sat up and came back to life and has been working wow. with a um, an organization called Archangel Ancient Tree Archive, which I'm now on the board of. And I got to know David, and I have to say that David changed my life oh my and my relationship with trees. So... Um, there's wow. one good example, and you know, it, books change people's lives. That book definitely 100%. changed mine. Okay, great answer. Great, great answer. <laughs> that was literally so much impact on your life. Thank you for sharing that. Wow, Julie, you want to throw one out there? <sighs> Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> I well, as Cindy was giving that great answer, I was trying to think, and my thoughts kept going back to my childhood actually mm -hmm. so I'm the youngest of four my oldest sister is a fantastic reader a voracious reader um, and I was the beneficiary of her recommended reading and so I remember from like a very early age like nine or ten reading books that she told me to read from like the diary of Anne Frank to mm, the yes. country girls by Edna O'Brien. Um, I remember reading that really young and being a to Cindy to Shirley Hazard. She was the, and I, and I think she turned me into a reader. I remember reading Haywire by Brooke Hayward, like a, across mm -hmm. a range of genres and just feeling to this day, I can tell you where I read each of those books, like what the setting was. And I, yeah. I learned what it was like to be galvanized by, as a reader and to, and to mm -hmm. read across a broad swath of things, you know, long before college kind of turned yeah. you into a reader. Um, so I don't know. I the can't, I can't choose you. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all help shape who you are. That's beautiful. Yes, yes, and yes. If you want more of these Fabo conversations that make you feel connected and pumped right up, subscribe to this podcast. Totally. And while you're at it, you might want to become a member of Parlay House, too. We're an amazing global community of women who talk about stuff like this all the time, books and more. So if you want to join us, go to parlayhouse.com. That's P-A-R-L-A-Y house.com to check it out. Yeah, yeah, we are. That's Parlay A-Y. I'm Arielle Fuller. I'm Ann Devereaux Mills. And I'm Adamika Arthur. Thanks for hanging with us today. You don't want to mix our next guest, and we hope you'll bring a friend. If it seems life is heavy, just pull up a seat. I've been looking for someone to me. I've got stories I can talk about. This one out loud. 
Bring a Friend was produced by us, Triple A, with a whole lot of help from our all-girl superstar team, Eliza Mills and Daisy Palacios. Our delightful music and theme song were created by the talented duo Exes, fronted by Ali McDonald. Learn more and get in touch at bringafriendpodcast.com. See you next week.